Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report. And I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. And we are The Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. <laughs> well done, James. <laughs> we nearly got there. Yeah. I, um, so did you listen to or watch... Phil Lowe yesterday, the Governor of the Reserve Bank? Yeah, it was it was a fascinating sort of process. I mean, the speech was, uh, uh, you know, a message for patients. You know, we're, we're waiting to see what happens and so should you. Um, and the questions I thought were really interesting because he was just hammered question after question as to say, you know, usually this is the point at which you would be raising rates. Which is Are true. you sure? Are you sure you, you don't want to? Um and he's, he's he's prepared to wait. So I think your description as a what did you what did you call it on the seven thirty report? An extended shrug. That, that's pretty accurate. It was a well, not really also, sure. I, I was kind of referring to the constant repetition, really, of of the uncertainty that we are yeah. in, and he uh, made it very clear they don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, you know, which uh, look, I mean, he said in the speech. We won't raise rates until uh, we see a sus- uh, inflation sustainably within the 2 to 3% band, right? Yes, yes. But within the speech was a graph that showed their forecast of inflation sustainably within the 2 to 3% band. Yes. And then he also said uh, all the evidence so far is um, not sufficient for us to conclude that it definitely is going to be within the 2 to 3% band. That's the problem. So the thing is, I suppose the difference between this time and usual is that if they have a forecast of something, mm. they go, right, uh, that's the truth. That forecast is what we have to act on. Yes. And now they're saying they've got a forecast, but they're not going to act on it because they don't know if it's going to be right or not. Yeah. You and can the thing is, some oh, just, before, I, just yeah. before you start, the thing is that forecasts are always uncertain. Yes. It's like, yeah, of course. Forecasts are just forecasts. But you know, ten years ago, if they had a forecast like that, they would have raised interest rates already, as you as you point out. Yeah. Do you think that is a reflection that they've lost confidence in their own forecasting, or is that just a reflection of like no one knows what's going to happen? You know, eight weeks ago we thought we were through this, and then Omicron came. I, I personally, I think it's a reflection of the amount of debt now that everyone's carrying, so that the stakes are higher yes. than they've ever been. Yes. And so. Um, a mistake this time would be really big. A I mistake think. as in tightening too tightening, quickly. Raising rates too soon yeah. and too far would be catastrophic. Yes. Both for both for the economy generally and for individuals yep. Yep. You know, who have taken on all this debt yeah. to buy houses that they couldn't really afford. Yeah, and there does seem to be a sort of consensus forming around this idea that all central banks are going to have to do that. They're just going to have to accept that because there's so much debt in the world, they can't raise rates too quickly, and so they're going to have to learn to live with a level of inflation higher, certainly higher than we've seen in the last 15 years, but higher than they might otherwise be comfortable with. Yes. Like it, so, so are the central bankers right and the, rest, and the market hasn't quite got to that point of getting that message, hey, we're just going to have to learn to live with... Inflation can't be... Zero all the time. We're going to have to learn to live with something more like at the top end of the two to three percent band. Yeah, well, that's fine with me. I mean, really, uh, this, this obsession with inflation, is, you know, yeah, sure, we don't want te- inflation of ten percent, but really, five yeah. percent inflation is not not going to be a problem at all. 
if that's what happens, it's fine. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. That's what I reckon. I mean, uh, but I did think it's interesting also that he he framed it in the way of, of talking about um, the historic opportunity to get unemployment down. Yes. And let's test. I think he used the expression he's going to te- they're going to test to see how far un- they can get unemployment down without inflation. I yeah. think that's really interesting. And it's certainly not something they would have ever done in the past. Yeah. Um, why do you think they're? Why do you think he wants to? <laughs> why do you think he wants to undertake that test at this moment? Oh, I think it's just a, a, a way of talking about the thing that they're going to do anyway because it's, there's so much debt. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I think the last thing he doesn't want to come out and say, "Oh, we can't raise rates because you know everyone's too, too up to their eyeballs in debt." Yeah. You know. So, but he could say in that instance, we c- we can raise rates if more people are employed. We'll feel more comfortable about raising rates. Yeah, and I think you know, I mean, it is it is interesting. Both the Reserve Bank and now the the government, the, the Prime Minister, are predicting unemployment with yeah. three in front of it. <laughs> yes, and you know, and that's kind of historically fifty years fifty year low. That's, I mean, uh, I mean, bearing in mind that. The, the reason that we've got that opportunity to get unemployment below 4% now is because of the closed borders mm. and the lack of migration. Yep. And yep. to a large extent, whether in unemployment goes back, uh, goes down and then goes back up again will depend on uh, yeah, migration. So. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I mean, I, it was interesting. I had a discussion with Saul Eslake yesterday and he was talking about that. And I said, well, what, do you think that... Um, I said to him, Saul, do you think that um, the low unemployment that we had in the 50s and 60s yes. uh, was therefore due to the white Australia policy. And he said, no, 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 that, our uh, immigration as a proportion of population in those days was higher than it is, has been recently. Right, okay. It was enormous, Yeah. obviously, and when you think about it, um, yeah. Yeah. the, the uh, immigration from Europe in the 50s was absolutely incredible. So, yes. And we still had unemployment of 2%. Averaged unemployment averaged two percent for two decades yeah. between in the fifties and sixties. Yeah, and so uh, naturally I said, so, so what was the reason for that then? If it wasn't immigration being low, what was it? The answer is women, because um, when they talked about it, when you talked about unemployment in the fifties and sixties, you were talking about unemployment of men, right? Because women weren't in the workforce. So it's not an apples and apples comparison. Not really, because yeah. um, you know in those days, women. Uh, mostly, particularly after they got married, they stayed home. So they weren't in the labour force, therefore yep. uh, female participation was really low. Overall workforce participation was much lower than it is now yep. as a result of that. And so um, uh, the unemployment started to rise, not because of the entry of women into the workforce, but coinciding with it. As feminism kicked in and um, women decided not to stay home anymore. They entered the workforce, mm. and therefore, if they didn't have a job, they were unemployed, whereas previously, uh, if they're home looking after kids, they weren't unemployed weren't yeah. Yeah. because yeah. they weren't in the, work, in the labour force. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah, it's, uh, it'll be an, it will be a historic moment if we get down to three. There's no doubt about it. So. Exactly, and, um, it seems, because, seems because like female participation is rising continually. I mean, male participation is falling at the same time. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is gradually, I mean, gradual decline. So it's interesting. Yeah. What else can we talk about? Well, just connected to that, I, I wonder if the RBA is going to spend much time looking at earnings season, which sort of is slowly getting underway. The, the, 
biannual earnings season with companies reporting. We saw one yesterday, Amcor, which is a giant packaging business all around the world, not just in Australia. They, their revenue went up 12% in the six months to the end of December. 11% of that was from price rises. So... The, That's the, I didn't see that. That's fascinating. Yeah. So basically they had a bunch of raw material price increases, which, which they usually have, you know, 1% or 2%, bounces around a bit. And then they had a host of what the CEO, Ron Dahlia, called general price increases. So, you know, wages, uh, freight, other supply chain disruptions. And, you know... It, it's sort of a theoretical thing. Which businesses have pricing power? And lots of investors are trying to figure that out. Well, Amcor's proven that they've got plenty. Um, so it'll be interesting to see as we go through earnings season who actually has pushed through price increases, how difficult it's been for them, whether they're going to have to keep doing rounds of price increases. It, it should give us a bit of a sense of yeah. what's going to happen with inflation. Yeah, well, if, if Amcor's putting up its prices, those prices of packaging flow through. Yeah. Of course. Of course, yeah. Um, and then you'd, you've got that question. Does the, I don't know, does the, the, the pet the pet, uh, petware retailer pass through those prices or do they do they have to eat that increased cost of packaging? Yeah. So that's, that's going to be a great test. But it's, it's interesting to see some of that. We're seeing a bit of that in the US earnings season too. I like that. Does the... Right, the pet food have to eat his price increase. Well, yeah, or the you know the kombucha containers. I don't, I don't know, whatever you like. Hey, um, have you written about the Rio Tinto? I have. Yeah, scam, scandal, scandal. Yeah, scandal. It, what? It, it's quite an amazing report. Um, so, firstly, why did they do it? Uh, so there was a bunch of allegations about poor um, behaviour towards women, particularly. In on the on on in Pilbara mine sites, so you know these mining camps are a long way from anywhere. Um, it's a heavily male-dominated environment, and the women there were reporting that they'd felt unsafe. And so Rio went and did this big uh, business-wide examination of its culture, um, which got, is quite. They got Liz Broderick to do it. They got Liz Broderick to do it, um, and importantly. And, and good on them, you know, they don't deserve a heap of credit, but they do deserve credit for putting the whole report out because it's quite, it's quite uh, um, shameful, I guess, disturbing. And uh, I, I think if you went through many organisations, you'd find this sort of thing, unfortunately. Well, I was going to say, do you think it's just Rio Tinder, particularly in the mining industry? No, I, certainly I, I not don't think it's... With, no. you know, mining camps and all that stuff. No. Remote camps. And, and, and so kudos to them for putting it out and taking the bullets and saying, you know, we've got a problem here. But what it sort of what it sort of really rammed home to me was A, how casual a lot of this stuff is. So just the constant sexist comments that women are putting up with, the, the, the constant idea that they're token, in, you know, appointments, um, the casual bullying. Uh, I bet you there's a lot of women who are listening to us today who say yeah of course yeah. and it's not just in mining exactly camps. exactly totally but it just they put up with this stuff all the time yeah yeah and and the, and the racism particularly towards indigenous people um or people of color it, it's it, and what really got me was that the tone from the top of rio is, is good at the moment like they are saying you know we need to we need to reform ourselves but it's it's all and this is always the case right it's the middle managers the line managers the supervisors the shift manager 
that's where the tone from the top does not stretch down and that's the big challenge facing Rio. How do you get that to change? Yeah, well... Um, big job. It's got to come from the top, though, yeah, doesn't it? another big job for Rio. Another big job. Well, that's right. It's not, they've not had a good time ESG-wise, really. No, terrible time. Terrible time. And it is, you know, you do have a sense that these once a few big things go wrong, it looks like everything's going wrong. And look, you know, they're still pumping out lots of iron ore. But yeah, and the share price is not exactly suffering. No, it's not suffering. But these are things that hurt you in the long run because your operations start, everything's a bit sloppier, find it harder to get staff in a tight labour market. Um, and you find it hard to get new mines up in places, and they're having this problem in Serbia um, where, where they're trying to get a lithium mine up, and the Serbian people have said, no, nah, no, nah, we, we, yeah. we don't want anything to do with Rio. Yeah. So. Interesting. Cost you. I see you had John Wiley this morning. Yeah. My old yeah. mate. Um, yes. Uh, it was a, a quarterly or a Yeah, it's invest, annual po- investor letter. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and he's kind of calling, well, he's, he's not calling the top of the market at this no, stage. And he's no, and he's not calling a big correction, but I guess what he's saying is the air's coming out, of, and, he, and he particularly said of crypto and venture capital, which is interesting. He's not in crypto, but he is in venture capital. Yeah. And uh, he's saying there's a huge bubble. Of, well, he's grizzling about the prices he's having to pay in venture capital. <laughs> yeah, that's that's bu- what he's doing. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's part of it. But, um, I mean... It, it is interesting how much money's going out and some of the valuations for businesses that are, well, some of them haven't started yet and they're still managing to pull in millions of dollars. Yeah. You do sort of, you know, it's, it's hard to, some, some of it's hard to reconcile. It, and to a certain extent it's people punting on, you know, they make, they make ten bets and eight of them fail and the two, the two that work will really work and pay for the rest, so... But it is. Well, that's what venture capital is, really. It is to a certain extent, yeah. Sure. But um, um, I think John's saying the, uh, the the punting is feverish at the moment. Yes. Now, he's also revealing that he doesn't really understand crypto. Yeah. yeah. I mean, his, his old partner, Mark Carnegie, has gone big on crypto. Um, yeah. So it'll be interesting to see who's right out of the two of them. Yeah. And I, could they both be right? But what I mean by that is could the price of Bitcoin and other stable coins fall, but the technology and the sort of general... Uh, oh, I think, I think that's exactly what's going to happen. Yeah. For sure. I mean, I think I sort of have some sympathy from, for Wiley's view that there's a bit of past the parcel. You know, it's hard to see why Bitcoin goes up or down on any one given day, but the idea of DeFi and decentralised finance... You, I, I can sort of wrap my head around that. Um, well, in fact, I, but there is also a good argument that um, Bitcoin's worth a million dollars each and will be... Because of its scarcity. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you can make that argument. I mean, I'm not, I, I, I haven't bought any. If I, thought, if I thought for sure Bitcoin was going <laughs> to a million bucks, I'd buy some. Yeah, yeah. But um, I don't know. But I think there's, there's an argument that, to that effect. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, think, I think Wiley's point that... Um, you know, he has a good point in there that there's a lot of people who say, well, it's been around for 10 years, you know, it's, this isn't going away. And he does have a good point that it's never faced like a serious stress test in markets where yeah. sentiment's really challenged. I think the same for venture capital. It's been no serious test of sentiment in the last 10 years. So maybe we're having that at the moment. Although tech stock's bouncing back a bit in the last week. Maybe we've seen the worst of it. 
Uh, oh yeah, I probably probably have. Yeah, yeah I don't know. I don't know. It's a great graph I saw the other day that there were in 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 2001. I'm not saying we're in 2001 conditions. Dot com bust. There were there was a rally of 16 percent, 18 percent, and 30 percent during that period. So let's let's see. I don't know. I don't know. Well, look, the um, the emblematic uh, tech stock is Tesla, I guess. Um, yeah. And yeah, bounced nicely. Well, and everyone's kind of realizing that actually maybe they are going to make a whole lot of money. Well, they're going to make a whole lot of money. Oh, I mean, hell you know, yeah. So it isn't. I mean, it's a really solid business. It's, it's been around for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and you know, we're going to. We're, everyone's going to have a drive an EV, and Tesla is the only company that's spent, you know, decades building up a reputation and expertise. Yeah. yeah. And here it is. Whether it's worth, you know. What is it? Almost a trillion dollars. That, that that's that remains the question. But there, there's a serious company there. Oh yeah. That does serious manufacturing. Yeah. On serious scales. So. Um, let's uh, do some questions, shall we? Yeah, sure. Good questions this week. Yeah, they are. Terrific. Okay, Daniel's first up. Uh, hi guys. With many fund managers now offering active ETFs as a structure. I wanted to get your thoughts on best performing managers for both local and overseas markets listed on the ASX that you are seeing seeing performing above the market over the next five to ten years. No personal advice. So we should explain what an active ETF is. It's ETFs um, don't have a fixed number of shares on issue. That uh, if you uh, listed investment companies issue a certain number of shares and demand and supply for those shares um, tends to push the price up or down and and sometimes they trade at a premium to their net asset value and sometimes they trade at a discount to net asset value. With ETFs, uh, if you, if, as people buy them, they issue more of them. So there's, there's, never, there's never a premium or a discount in the price to the net assets. The tr- shares always trade at a net asset. Traditionally, ETFs tend to follow uh, the index, an index, whatever the index is. So they just match the index, they buy shares according to the, their weighting in the index. And so what you do is you get the ASX 200 ETF and your uh, returns will match the ASX 200. But increasingly they're putting out these things called the active ETFs in which they are, they are structured as ETFs except that managers manage them. They buy and, shell, they buy and sell assets of the shares according to what they think is going to go well. Yeah. Um, so it's just another way of being a listed investment company that uh, never trades at a premium or discount. Um, and that's why we're seeing some of them too, because some managers are finding that the listed investment company model, they can't close that discount to NTA. That's right. And so they're going, oh, we'll do an ETF instead. It drives them crazy. Yeah. Because things like Australian Foundation constantly trade at a premium. Yes. And all these other managers tear their hair out thinking, how come... You know, that's going on anyway. Yeah. So they, they put out an active ETF and good luck to them. So uh, what do you reckon? Uh, I uh, find this question what are your so best I find this question so hard. Like what managers – because managers who have done well in the last – over the last five years, I mean, we've seen some of them, Magellan and, and more recently VGI, for example, we've seen them really struggle. So and, – and then we're entering this new phase where – Managers who short and do other things might have more success than they've had in the last five years when momentum's running hard. So I'm, I, I'm sitting on the fence terribly there, but 
Uh, oh, I think sitting on the fence wisely, James. <laughs> I, I think it's just so hard to say this manager's going to do well for the next five or ten years. Yeah, I don't want to say it either. Because the I style, mean, uh, you know. And the thing is, I, I know a few good managers who I like and I talk to and uh, they, they're doing well, uh, have done well. Uh, but I, to be honest, I, I can't remember if they got an active ETF. Yeah, no. I don't know. No, I, um, I don't know many with active ETFs. I think Magellan went to an active, active ETF structure for one of their funds, so, but, you know. Yeah, well, you, you don't want to go to Magellan. They're in a bit of a mess. <laughs> well, I'm not going to recommend it to Daniel, either generally or uh, otherwise. Yes. Okay, you can read the next one. Okay, hi, Alan and James. What are your thoughts on the Fang companies as a group for the next 10 years? Uh, these are the big tech companies. So Fang was Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, which is called Alphabet. Um, obviously, they've been a great place to be over the last two years, but the future is less clear. On one hand, the spectre of inflation is kryptonite for these long-dated cash flow growth companies. On the other hand, they're the world's biggest businesses with great long-term prospects. It's hard to imagine Tesla, Apple, Google, Microsoft, Alibaba, etc., not all being bigger in 10 years. Are inflation and rising interest rates game over for them as investments, or could they still compound well? Great question. Um Yes, it should be Mang, actually, because Facebook's now Meta. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. True. Um, I, personally, I don't think you should look at them as a group anymore. No. I think they're so individual. There was a time when you could sort of put a, put a circle around them and call them fangs and yeah, invest in a lot of them, but really... Journalist type did they're that. They're just totally um, different now. I mean, uh, Apple Apple's the world's biggest company. Um, it's fantastic, uh, fantastic business. And I think... Alphabet... Uh, Alphabet... I don't know. I mean, also a good company, but you got you got to look at them individually. I think you do, you do. But I think, I think Liam's point is right, um, and we've seen this with Apple and Microsoft, particularly, and and Google. Th- they do have durability over a long period. They're constantly reinvesting. That that's a really big point. I think they're constantly reinvesting in themselves and renewing themselves and moving into new areas. We've seen that with Microsoft with this gaming deal recently and I listened to the Google call yesterday. It was all about artificial intelligence, nothing about search engines or anything like that. It was all about AI. And so I think, you know, I I think Liam's point's right. They are going to be bigger companies in 10 years' time. Um, And, you know... Oh, they are. They do remain quality companies. I wouldn't, you know. There's been a big tech sell-off, but you do have to look selectively and think about these things individually. Yeah, I agree. Um, the, the, we talked. We just talked about Tesla. I think that's yeah. going to be big. Microsoft. I really like Microsoft and the way it's thinking. Yeah, uh, the, the way it's run. The one thing you want to think about, Liam, I reckon though, is whether there's regulatory issues out there for them. Like, could could Google or Facebook or even Apple face some sort of regulatory anti-competition or pro-competition regulation. They're very good at dodging that that as well, but something to think about. Uh, Oscar says, um, short-time listener and newcomer to the financial perspectives of the world. About 18 months. I'm someone who's focused on my studies to get my career get to my career objective. And now that I'm in my early career, the financial view of the world has become the next door I want to open. My questions are related to developing this new and interesting view. If you only have time to answer one question, could you pick the question that you think is most important? 
Uh, we can probably possibly manage two, Oscar, but see how we go. <laughs> They're good questions, so let's do it. One, if you could talk to a younger Alan or James, what helpful exposure, sources or practices would you tell yourself to do or learn? Um, go on. Well, read the second question because oh, okay. I'm going to... Two, personally, I can only read so much and need to bounce my ideas around, so I have been looking for a mentor, much like two gentlemen in the cafe just speaking about finance. How would you recommend I go about making this happen? I'm a bit worried because my answer to question one um, would be try and read as much as you can. <laughs> and Oscar's saying you can only read so much, which is true. But um, I think you just need to expose yourself to it and start thinking about these things. Like, what, what you know, you don't necessarily have to know what every company on the exchange is doing at any one time, but have a sense of, you know, what what's your financial goal and what are the sort of building blocks you need to get there? So, you know, familiarise yourself with stocks and ETFs and listed investment companies and the different options you've got and then you might, you'll get a start to get a sense of what um, uh, appeals to your risk tolerance and uh, and your sort of style of... Yeah, of no, that's great. Really good approach. advice. I'd tell my younger self to... Um, uh, start early and understand compound interest. Yeah, I mean, I, I just didn't do it. You know, when no. I was when I was twenty or eighteen no. or twenty five, even you know, if I'd have just sort of started to use compound interest then, I mean, I I wouldn't be sitting here with you today, mate. <laughs> oh, thanks. No, I'd be uh, no, I'd be uh, I'd be on a Pacific island somewhere. But I think that is the point. I, I, my advice would be the same. Just start. Just do something. Doesn't have to be huge. But the, the experience of doing something yeah. will will get you – will just get you – yeah. it doesn't have to be a lot of money, but just some money in the market or and, in And not something. in ETFs. I mean, look, I think about – you can do ETFs and everyone – Warren Buffett and everyone says, you, you know, if you're not experienced, you should do ETFs. Yeah. That's fine. But the thing about buying companies is you learn more. If you just buy the market, if you just, just ride the market, you know, that's fine. Mm. And, you, you know, you can, you can learn about the market, but – Buying individual companies really teaches you, because you have to. You should learn about the companies themselves, and learn about um, what happens if you fail, because failure really teaches you, <laughs> and you will fail. Yep. Um, so yeah, I mean, I th- start young, buy some stocks. Yeah. Work out, don't trade them. Yep. Don't trade. And, and follow with follow them. what happens to them, how they change, and. But it's interesting. He's asking. He wants a mentor, not not a book. This was yeah. the question too. He says, "I want to, I want to find a mentor." I think that's not a bad idea. I mean, it's probably easier for you and I because we talk to people all the time who are in the market. And but, but if you can find someone, it doesn't necessarily have to be someone who's like a giving you formal financial advice. Although that might be an option down the track. But someone else who's been in the market and bought stocks and stuffed a few things up, and just talk to them about their experiences. Yeah, like just. How did you get started in this? And they'll say, oh, you know, I bought 100 BHP shares or 100 yeah. bucks worth of BHP shares. Your you, you, you mentor will probably be someone that is learning stuff all yeah. the time too. Uh, I think it's got to be someone in your circle, Oscar. I mean, yeah. You know, perhaps an uncle or an, an aunt yeah. yep. who's been tr- uh, been investing and has, has made some mistakes. Yep. That'd, that'd yeah, it doesn't have to be. They don't have to, they don't have to know everything. No. You so, almost sort of want to learn together. Yeah. Your turn. Hi, Alan. Love the podcast. A bit Who is int- it? 
Oh, it's Richard, sorry. Richard says, Hi, Alan. Love the podcast. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on annuities. My wife and I have a healthy industry super balance. We're both retired in... We are both retired. I'm 70 and my wife will be 67 this year. Do you think it would be worthwhile putting, say, $100,000 each into annuity? No indexation, fixed payments. Reducing our super balance to keep receiving a small age pension of approximately $6,000 combined per year. So we retain our healthcare card. I don't know much about annuities. General advice, of course. Um, Annuities can be expensive. So just be careful of that. Uh, But yeah, look... Um, I think they're okay. It gives you a sort of a, an income, and it's a matter of structuring your, your income, you know, with all the various complexities you might want to put together. And you probably could do with some some expert advice just to make sure that you don't that you you get the maximum out of the pension as well as as well as the annuity and as well as income from your other yeah uh, your other things. But you should see it. In my view, you should see annuity as a as one of your investments. Uh, in a portfolio, and yep. um, the the other thing to say here is that uh, the government's very focused on this end of the super sector now. Like we've obviously had a big accumulation phase. Now there's a lot of people like Richard who are retired or retiring, and so they're very alive to this issue. A discussion with your super fund about what retirement income products they might offer might be a good place to start. They might have. They might say, well, we've got this, this, and this. And that will give you an idea of where you can head. Yep, totally agree. Uh, so, yeah, Richard, we're saying, sure, go ahead. Um, just be careful of the price. Yep. Uh, the, which, by which we mean the fees. Yes. Uh, and uh, because they can, they can kill you. And also just, yeah. Yeah. But, but you're super, you're talking to your super fund about what they might offer will give you a sense. They'll be able to give you a sense of how it works in with your yeah, the super right. fund balance. Exactly. So talk to your super fund first. Yeah. yeah. Jeremiah says, hello, Alan Guest. I see in the New Daily today that Scott Morrison wants to get unemployment levels down to something with a three in front of it this year. As I understand it, to be employed, one only needs to work two hours a fortnight. Given such a low bar, I think Scott's goal is very achievable and farcical. Is there any danger of politicians in this country using better statistical data for their benchmarks, such as underemployment? I think underemployment better represents hardships being felt by working class people. Thanks for the pod. Couldn't agree more, Jeremiah. It's an hour a week is catch you as being employed. It, it is interesting, though, and you would have noticed this too, in, in Philip Lowe's speech on Wednesday, he did speak to underemployment, yeah. which has fallen markedly. And, and so I guess if there's a bit of solace you can take, Jeremiah, it's that the Reserve Bank Governor is looking at that number and is taking it into account. Um, yes, we're all going to be excited about does it have a three in front of it, but the RBA is looking no, at it. No, but you can say, I mean, at that point, underemployment will have a six in front of it or something. I mean, it'll be it's – it's falling, as yeah. you say. Yeah. Um, and then the other, the other um, statistic that people look at is under, underutilisation which is the addition of un- unemployment and underemployment. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, that's been coming down, obviously, because both unemployment and underemployment have been coming down. So, uh, look, it doesn't matter what you look at in a way. Yeah, I mean, it's the trend is more important The trend in, is important. In a way. So I think, Jeremiah, we do have a few labour force uh, gauges to look at, uh, but you're right, we do tend to focus on one at the expense of the others. So perhaps we need a bit more of a holistic view. Yes. 
Now that's it for the questions and that's it for Money Cafe this week. Thanks for listening. It's been great uh, talking to you and it's been great talking to James. Um, uh, Stephen Mayne will be back next week joining me in the cafe. So send in a question if you've got one for him or me and we'll answer it next week. Send in the question to themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. Until next week, I'm Alan Kohler, Editor-in-Chief of Eureka Report. And I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer columnist at the Financial Review. Uh, thanks, James. See you in a fortnight. Thanks for having me again, Alan.